You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello and welcome to Super Talk. My name is Mel Burks and I'm the General Manager of Advocacy with AIST. Today we'll be discussing the vital role of investors in carbon transition. And joining us is Chris Igo, Chief Investment Officer for Core Investments at AXA Investment Managers. So Chris, let's start with the basics. What is carbon transition and what does this mean for investors? Well, the, the carbon transition is really facing the, the challenge of, of climate change. Uh, over you know, 100 years of, of industrial activity has has created huge amounts of, of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases being pumped into the atmosphere. And the science is pretty clear now that that is leading to a rise in, in global atmospheric temperatures, uh, which itself is provoking a change in the climate. And that change in the climate threatens our, our very existence, uh, ultimately. And in, in the meantime, it threatens our economies, our, our societies, uh, and the way that, that people go about their daily lives. So we have to address that challenge. We have to try and restrict the amount of uh, emissions going into the atmosphere. We have to try and target uh, preventing the, the Earth's temperature rising by more than 2% relative to pre-industrial levels, and ideally rising no more than 1.5%. And that requires a huge change in in the global economy and how we operate. We're going to have to reduce carbon dioxide emissions going forward at the same time as preserving economic growth and and living standards. And that's, you know, uh, the biggest ever challenge, I think, to to humanity. Where do investors come into that? Well, investors uh, have the ability to finance uh, businesses and, and finance economic growth. And when investors talk about the carbon transition, what they mean is that they are in a position to direct capital and direct their investment to those companies and, and activities that are contributing to reducing carbon dioxide emissions and achieving what we, you know, to use more terminology, a net zero future where industrial activity uh, does not produce any net new additions to carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere. So we have a role to play as investors in that we have this privileged position of being the custodians of pension money and savings money, and we can direct that to economic activity and to businesses that help uh, on this pathway towards uh, uh, reducing carbon uh, and hopefully restricting the rise in global temperatures. It's interesting because, of course, super funds and, and other pension funds around the world have that long-term time horizon in terms of their investments. And obviously the future and health of the planet is something which is clearly aligned with not just the financial goals of the fund, but also the retirement goals of their members, because as I say, there's no retirement on a dead planet. Um, so I can see how that really does does align with the overall intent of the Australian super funds in particular. But in terms of the desire to be involved in this what are some of the key challenges that investors face when they begin that carbon transition journey um well there are numerous but i think it's important to point out that um asset owners and and asset managers don't really have a choice today other than to uh, design and implement and follow a uh, a carbon transition policy as part of their investment strategy uh, AXA Investment Managers is, is part of the AXA group of insurance companies 
And both at the group level and at the asset manager level, we've signed up for several you know, uh, industry-wide initiatives, such as the Asset Owners Net Zero Alliance and the uh, Asset Managers Net Zero Alliance, which uh, means that we publicly sign up to commitments to reduce the the carbon intensity of our, our portfolios over the next uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And, and there are well-defined targets as part of that, that commitment. So the challenge is, how do you do that? Um, first of all, you have to, uh, you have to have a target. You have to have an ambition, uh, and you have to understand where your starting point is. So measuring the carbon intensity of the assets that we invest in today is, is really, really important. Uh, and that's not easy because, you know, data on, on these kind of issues is, is relatively new. Uh, it's being developed. Um, we do have, I think today, much more clarity on the carbon footprint of companies than we had, say, five or, or ten years ago. And that allows us to, you know, take a snapshot of, of where we are today. But that, that doesn't help too much, but we're thinking about the future. What we need to do is how do we get from A to B? Uh, and that means having well-defined targets for the, you know, time periods ahead. And... It, investing in companies that we're confident will be reducing their own carbon intensity over that period or investing in the companies that will enable others to reduce their carbon footprint over over that time period. So as always with investing, there's a lot of work to do in terms of research. Uh, there's a lot of work to do in terms of, you know, uh, selecting the businesses and the assets that you're going to invest in. And there's a lot of work to do in monitoring the progress towards uh, those goals. So ESG investing more broadly, but particularly uh, investing focused on climate and, and the carbon transition has really become a dominant driving force for, for the asset management industry. And how do you tackle the challenge of existing investments versus new investments? I know, obviously, if you're looking at brand new investments, there's a set of criteria you might place over it. But if you've got, uh, I'm thinking of super funds, for example, who've had long-term investments in companies, how does that approach differ to, to so you're engaging with an existing uh, investment versus a new one? I think the, there are two broad approaches. The first one is is kind of the... I'd say maybe the more blunt approach is, is we can choose to exclude mm. and divest from from those companies. And, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, ourselves and, and, and other asset managers and asset owners have uh, made some fairly bold uh, statements about uh, industries like coal, for example, mm. uh, oil and gas or, or some of the oil and gas activities, some of uh, other activities that threaten, you know, our biodiversity uh, and these are probably the more extreme examples where there really isn't much of a choice, really, if you're serious about making an environmental impact, you have to divest. And, of course, that means that you are somewhat restricting your investment universe and also that uh, there could be uh, some social consequences of, of that as well when, you know, if you're forcing companies mm. to get, go out of business and that has implications for jobs and, and communities. So that's another consideration. But exclusion is part of the process. The second approach is is engagement, really. It's about, okay, here's a company that 
we don't particularly like its carbon intensity today, but uh, in engaging with the management and understanding their future plans, we can see a pathway towards them reducing their uh, carbon emissions in, in the future. And there's a framework that's been built up globally now, which uh, provides companies with a lot of help in, in devising these transition pathways. Uh, they can get accreditation uh, for for their plans, which is important for, for investors. Um, and there's lots of data availability now to to help us monitor that uh, that pathway in the future. And I think you know we obviously, um, if you're running a big pension fund, you can't exclude lots of things. Otherwise, you're going to yeah. uh, restrict your investment universe and potentially your your performance. Engagement, I think, has to be the way the way forward. And and you know the super funds, other pension funds around the world have the clout to be able to engage with with companies and put pressure on companies to ensure that they are on the right path. And I think it's interesting you made the point that um, measuring carbon intensity is one of the challenges. And I think everyone's mind automatically turns to oil, coal and gas and those kind of transport industries. But I imagine in a portfolio, a diverse portfolio, there are you know hundreds, thousands of companies, all of whom have some carbon uh impact and trying to assess them always sounds like a, a really, really huge t- task. So in terms of um, considerations for managing portfolio data for investors, what's what's kind of critical in that? Um, uh, well, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, measuring the carbon intensity is, is very challenging because there's the direct uh, carbon intensity that, uh, you know, from a business t- doing its daily operations, there's the... Uh, the kind of indirect carbon footprint, which comes from companies selling their products, their goods mm-hmm. and services, but also the, the supply chain. And, and, you know, that's a term that's in the news a lot at the moment. But, uh, you know, when, when your company's sourcing materials or or intermediate goods from a, a wide variety of, of, of supply, then, you know, there's a, there's a carbon uh, impact there as well. So trying to understand the full range of, of, of carbon intensities is, is challenging, but it's, it is in, uh, it is important. Uh, and then building up a, a portfolio is really, um, you know, it requires to have that data across a whole range of different assets and, and, and industries, but also to uh, have, as I said earlier, some, you know, defined targets about how you want to, manage a portfolio and the more we get into uh what we call impact investing which is where you you're trying to have a real measurable impact on on something and these are usually defined by the un's sustainable development Mm -hmm. goals um you have to have you know key performance indicators which are credible and measurable and transparent and uh you know if, if i was managing money on behalf of a, of a super fund, I fully expect that, you know, on our quarterly reporting, we would have to go into great detail on the impact of, 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 the, uh, of the investment choices we make through seen through the lens of, of climate change and, and the carbon transition. And I wonder also whether you could comment on the risk of greenwashing, because that, that is a, a topic that's sort of coming up about how investors need to be, and I know you've talked about the measures, but I, do, I guess one of the risks is that 
it's not delivering what it says it's delivering, and then and it, you could be accused of, of greenwashing, or one could be accused of greenwashing. Yeah, I mean, I think it 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 it, it, um, it comes from both the companies and and from the investors as well. So mm-hmm. you know, companies, and to be fair, this pressure on companies to um, disclose their environmental impact of their business is is relatively new, and mm. uh, it's not it's not easy for all companies to provide the same level of, of disclosure. If you're a, you know, a big multinational company, it's going to be a lot easier for you to, first of all, collate and organize and publish data on all aspects of your environmental and social uh, impact. If you're just a small producer, you know, uh, it's, it's a lot more difficult because you don't have the resources. So we have to, we have to be kind of flexible in, in, in how we see that, but there is clearly a, uh, a risk that companies of whatever size mm. um, aren't honest. Basically, they yeah. don't yeah. they don't disclose everything about mm. what they do in terms of their impact on the environment or, or society. And you know, it's one thing to log onto a corporate website and and read their sustainability report, but it's quite another thing to really do a deep dive to see in terms of all aspects of their business are, are they being green or, or are they kind of glossing over mm. some of the issues and and this is a game where ngos come in uh, play a very important role in putting pressure on on companies and, and revealing where there may be some mm. issues and it's where you know the data and, and initiatives like the uh, task force on on climate financial disclosure comes in because that's really important in getting that clarity of data mm. on the investor side you know mm. there is a you know the commercial objective is to get as many people to invest in your funds as possible mm. and mm. um you know there there is faddishness in the investment industry and it's quite easy just to put a label on a fund saying it's a green fund or an esg fund what's preventing that from being you know a, a full greenwashing wave is that the regulation mm. is evolving very quickly. And here in Europe, where I'm located, uh, the EU has, has uh, implemented uh, a new regime for, for asset managers, which puts you know very very strict uh, criteria and guidelines around ha- whether or not you can call a investment fund sustainable or not. And it's quite challenging to meet those criteria. And it's a bit of a pain as an asset manager to meet that. But actually, for the industry, it's really good news. And it Mm. means that uh, it's much harder to sell an investment product, which you call sustainable, but really isn't. Yeah, it gives confidence to investors that there is some consistency in that that labelling, which is is encouraging. I'm interested if you could share a little bit about um, AXA investment managers approach to um, carbon transition and I know that recently you acquired Climate C which is an interesting um, organization. Yes it is um, it's um, I think it's one of the the many tools uh, in the toolbox that, that we have now and you know it's it's evolving um, so we just announced yesterday actually that uh, 41% of our eligible assets uh, we can define as, as coming under net zero criteria. So that means that they are online to be, uh, you know, zero carbon producing by, uh, I think it's 2030. Um, so that's a, that's a big kind of step mm. in, in our own progress. In terms of what else we're doing, we're developing lots of uh, tools to allow us to build portfolios that 
are either targeting today low carbon, so particularly on, on the fixed income side, which is you know an important asset for 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 long term investors, and, and the investment strategy tends to be a kind of buy and hold approach. It's important that the the bonds in those strategies are already from companies that are you know have a very very low carbon footprint. Uh, and and we, we've we've engaged with a number of pension funds here in the UK, for example, mm. on that kind of strategy. Uh, elsewhere, we're, we're we're looking at, and this is where climate seed comes in, the whole question of of carbon offset, which is you know whatever you do and however brave you are in terms of reducing the exposure to carbon producing assets, there's still going to be carbon produced in the yes. world, yeah. and um, we need to uh, look at other techniques for you know, taking carbon out of the atmosphere or, or recycling it. Uh, and there are various things that companies can do in terms of direct carbon capture and, and storage. Uh, but investors and companies are, are looking at other solutions to offset their carbon uh, footprint. And they can use use the uh, official mandatory uh, carbon markets like we have it in Europe with the uh, uh uh, emissions trading system, which you know puts a cap on the amount of emissions that certain industries can generate, and and anything above that you have to buy a carbon credit for, and, and these are traded instruments. And it allows you to, as an investor, buy these things to offset some of your own carbon footprint. But there's also, I think, really interesting these voluntary carbon markets, uh, which are using kind of nature-based solutions, and, and climate seed comes under that category. So it's a an organization that helps uh, develop uh, nature-based uh, projects, which you know essentially are helping to take carbon out of the atmosphere. And these become accredited, and therefore they uh, generate carbon credits, which then companies can buy. And that allows companies to offset their own carbon uh, production. And it can be a wide range of things. It can be forestry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be... Uh, renewable energy sources it could be biodiversity uh, focused projects uh, but it's it's an interesting and and you know um, it, it, it kind of makes sense that we're we're trying to use nature to solve a problem that you know we've created as humans that's right we've created a problem for nature but we're going to try and get nature to help us to fix it so and just I'm just reflecting on what you so I think it's a really important point you made that when we talk about uh net zero and you did mention this at the start but it's not about not producing any carbon it's about minimizing the carbon we produce and then finding a way to to neutralize or offset that it's sort of an obvious statement but i think sometimes in the general chit chat that sometimes is is missed so thanks for that yeah Um, i think it's a good point because you know i'm no scientist but what i've read is that you know carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for 100 years Mm. so there's stuff up there that we produced a long time ago and the, the key is not to add to that and where possible try and, and reduce it and the more forests we have the more algae in the sea we have then the, the better chance we have of reducing those levels given the carbon transition marks such a huge structural shift in the way the global economy works what do you think the next phase is for investors well i think there are probably there are two or three um i think one is that um we mentioned exclusions earlier, and I, I think there's going to be actually more pressure to exclude certain activities uh, from an investment portfolio. So I'm thinking of things like, you know, fracking mm. or tar sands oil developments or, you know, oil developments in the Arctic, which are having a, 
environmental impact. Um, mining still, you know, is a controversial mm. industry and it's already been subject to some ex- exclusion policies. Uh, and of course, a lot of things that are mined today we will need in the future, nickel and stuff like that. So we have to be sensitive to the to the kind of economic impact. But again, I think there's probably uh, more of those exclusion policies going 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 to come through. Second point is, you know, um, is technology. It's uh, the 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 stuff that we've done so far is relatively easy you know we're moving towards electric car production and you know the the marginal the the, the marginal sales of 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 new cars are dominated now most places by electric vehicles unfortunately not in australia chris but that's, <laughs> that's another point but yes well, but that will come and you know and, and and you know domestic heating and things that are, but there are parts of our you know industrial activity that are much harder to abate and um you know, I think of things like steel production and yes. aluminium smelting and, and chemicals. And, and the technology there is evolving really quickly. And actually, as an investor, that's super exciting because it's it's new businesses, it's new technologies, which, you know, the growth path is is quite extraordinary if things work out uh, well. Um, and I think of things like alternative fuels as well. I'm particularly interested in, in the developments going on with hydrogen as a, mm. as a potential alternative to c- carbon fuels. So that whole technology and growth aspect is, is really important for, for investors as well. And I think the third thing is, you know, it's about partnership with, with government. Um, a, a lot of what we need to achieve still needs government action. Mm. And, you know, we're, we're three weeks away from the COP26 meeting in Glasgow and you know the world is, is going to be looking to its leaders to to do more you know and there are things that can be done in terms of uh, cooperation on on carbon taxation for example or uh, cross-border carbon uh, trading uh, to allow you know to, to prevent you know companies from carbon dumping which is when mm. they go and locate in a in a yes. less restrictive location but still sell their product into into economies or, or markets where there, there are more restrictions. And, you know, I, we, we often think about, you know, the progress that was made on, on getting people to stop smoking. Yes. Uh, that was a big societal problem, mm. huge cost to our health services. Well, we achieved that through public information and, and so on, but tax played an important role yes. In, yes. in that as well. So governments, you know, can tax and they can subsidise as well. Yes. So I think we will be looking for governments to do more uh, and support the, the energy transition. And, and that provides, you know, uh, uh, more opportunities for investors to really leverage their own uh, capabilities in terms of deploying, uh, deploying capital. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to see what will come out of Glasgow in, yeah. in, in that respect. And I guess one of the elements of having that, that sort of government position is it provides a level of certainty to investors as well, because if there's a commitment, a government commitment to a particular approach, it um, does give a sort of a level of structure and certainty that could be beneficial, I expect, for, for investors as well. I think that one thing I would add as well, and I think it's important particularly for, you know, for long-term investors is that all of this, uh, from an investment point of view, needs to be done without forgetting our fiduciary duty to provide, you know, long-term risk-adjusted uh, returns. And I'm a, a massive advocate of um, we will only do that if we do make our 
strategy is more sustainable because, you know, by their very nature, sustainable businesses will be the ones that survive and profit and grow. And the unsustainable ones will disappear and they'll be stranded assets. And, you know, if you're a pure play oil producer today, you may be loving the fact that a barrel of oil is now fetching $85, but that ain't going to last. And, you know, your business is on a, on a downward path unless they change and diversify. And, you know, that has implications for where as investors we put our money. Mm. It's, I guess it's like any huge economic seismic shift. There are companies that adapt and there, there are those are not the sort of common co's versus others who are able to, to see more broadly what the, the direction that things are heading uh, and are able to adapt and thrive in it. So, it, it, I mean, I, I feel quite positive after our conversation, Chris, but I'm, I'm wondering if you had a couple of sort of closing messages for Australian super funds, given their long-term horizon and their commitment, obviously, to uh, maximising returns for their members, but also the responsibility for their, their retirement more generally, what, what would be sort of your message be for Australian super funds in relation to carbon transition? I think it's it always comes back to uh, to risk and, and return, and the risks are around if we, if we don't put this at the centre of what we do as investors, then you know the the financial impact in our portfolios could be could be considerable, and and the risks come from you know the, the climate change itself impacting on on businesses and and, and the global economy through the physical damage that you know extreme weather events can do to to the businesses and and, and to communities the risks also come from you know the, the the regulatory side as well because um governments do have that ability to to punish bad companies and and, and raise carbon taxes for example which could be very damaging to uh, companies that produce a lot of, of co2 so we have to understand the risks and, and manage the risk because that that could have a detrimental impact on 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 the, on the long term performance of, of those portfolios. But equally, you know, we have to think about the returns as well and how the carbon transition is going to change the global economy. You know, we will, you know, in theory and hopefully, we will be less and less dependent on carbon fuels, on fossil fuels, and, and oil has been at the centre of the global economy for many many years and. The peripheral uh, implications of that have been, you know, political and military and and uh, and so on. And what I think is really exciting is that, you know, when we think about energy, the sun shines many places, even uh, even in the UK sometimes. <laughs> Occasionally, uh, and the wind blows, and we have a lot of wind, and we can democratize more our energy sources around the world so that. Economies that have been energy starved in the past have the opportunity to develop their own resources and that has transformative implications for their economies and for their standards of living. And for investors, it means that there are some really interesting long-term investment opportunities flowing from that. That's fantastic, Chris. That's an incredibly positive note to, to finish on. I'd like to thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks to Chris Igo from AXA Investment Managers. For more episodes of Supertalk and for more information on the work of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, visit our website at aist.asm.au and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.